Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast from Vital Point Church. My name is Ron. I'm the pastor here at Vital Point. We believe that it's important for people to explore and grow in their faith. And my hope, my prayer is that this message that you're listening to will draw you closer to better understanding how you can live out your faith journey in the everyday life. Sit back and enjoy. Good morning, Poplar Hill. Uh, It's a joy to be with you this morning, even though only virtually, as this is the Sunday that I've been assigned to be in person at Exeter. And uh, just before I begin, I want to say a word about the scheduling of my talks. The last two, if you have a good memory, have been on a really uncontroversial subject, which is money. And then Ron called me and said, well, hey, we got a little lighter topic for you. How about adultery? So, gee whiz, Ron. So, Poplar Hill, I'm proposing that Ron give a talk next week on the topic of are women superior to men? And uh, I, I just love to hear how he handles that subject. Uh, He could get some good help from Desiree and Elaine, that's all I can say. So here I am, uh, and uh, I've titled this talk, uh, When You're an Adulterer But Don't Know It. Now the text that I was given, that I'm not going to preach on, is Proverbs chapter 7. And Proverbs chapter 7 contains a very lengthy warning against falling into adultery. But adultery comes in lots of different forms. That's the unexpected part. That's where you might be an adulterer, but you don't know it. And so I want to broaden out the topic uh, this morning from the legitimate concern of Proverbs 7 into uh, a wider perspective. Now, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, taught that you can commit adultery without ever having a literal affair. And the point is that sin, that sin of adultery starts in our heart. Matter of fact, all sin starts in the heart. It's not a matter of the external. It's what is going on in the heart that determines how we act externally. So, I, I want to put the narrow issue of literal adultery into a much wider framework that the Bible actually provides for it. But in it, I have a warning, we may find ourselves, me included, more prone to adultery than we thought. Let me explain. Uh, First of all, you may find it surprising, if you read the letter of James, that James, who was the brother of the Lord Jesus, and he knew what he was talking about, James calls the people he's writing to adulterers. And uh, so James's warning, if it was applicable to the churches because he was writing to a group of churches, if it was applicable to them, then it's applicable to any church today. So I'm going to read here from James 3, verse 17 through to chapter 4, verse 10. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, 
that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. That's an important statement. Therefore, it says, and here James quotes Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. James really wasn't having a seeker-sensitive Sunday morning when he wrote this letter. First he calls them adulterers, then he calls them sinners. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, in this passage, James starts by saying that wisdom is peaceable, full of mercy, and sincere. That word means unwavering. And in chapter 1 of James's letter, he has talked about a, a double-minded person. A double-minded person is a person who follows God when they get from God whatever they want, but when they don't get what they want, their following ceases. That's double-mindedness, and James says a double-minded person won't get anything from God, because when you follow Jesus, it's on his terms, not on our terms, and we follow him regardless of the cost. We're not in Christianity for what we can get out of it. You, you will get out of Christianity more than you'll get anywhere else in this world, but we're not in it to, for what we get out of it. So James says that with true wisdom is unwavering or sincere. It's not double-minded. It is single-minded in its devotion to God. So in other words, the mature believer is a person who follows God no matter what the situation is. In church, should be full of people uh, who love and cultivate peace, who are merciful, single-minded, unwavering in their pursuit of God, just like James writes in these first couple of verses. And the result, this is verse 18, is a church full of peacemakers who sow peace and harvest righteousness. What's righteousness? Righteousness is looking like Christ, is acting like Christ. So James saying, where there's true wisdom, then the church looks like Christ. That's our goal, isn't it, vital point? We can have lots of objectives for our church. We can have lots of things that we want to do, and they're all legitimate things, but they're really summed up in one thing, that our church looks like Jesus. That's what we want, isn't it? We want people who look like Jesus. We want a church that looks like Jesus. Imagine 
if Jesus was wandering through the highways and byways of rural Middlesex County, the city of London, Exeter, Clinton, wherever. Imagine if Jesus was wandering through those places. People would be thronging, same way they did 2,000 years ago. And where there's a church that looks like Jesus, people will come. That's what we want. So James has made this wonderful statement about wisdom and uh, peacemaking and single-mindedness in the pursuit of God and a harvest of righteousness. That's really what we want. But this statement that he's made, it sets the stage for the missiles that he is about to hurl. Because the churches to whom James is writing seem to be full of anything but peace. It doesn't look like Jesus at all. Verse 1 of chapter 4, which I read, says it's full of wars and fights, or the some of the churches anyway that he's writing to are full of wars and fights, quarrels. Power struggles and battles for control are what we expect in the world, but they should never take place in church. In all my years of leading churches, 95% of the time when there was a dispute or people took the half and walked out, they put up all sorts of spiritual-sounding issues for leaving, but 95% of the time, it came down to one thing, control. They wanted control. They didn't want to serve. And battles for control and power struggles are disgusting in the sight of God. Uh, they should never take place in church, and we'll never get a church that looks like Jesus if that's going on. So James is concerned about this because he's seeing some of this happening in the churches that he's writing to. And he goes on in verse 2 and says, There are quarrels among believers because their passions, he says, are at war within them. Now, this word passions, it translates the Greek word from which we get the word in English, hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. It's kind of like party time. It's pursuing everything that you want to make yourself feel better. It can have a sexual connotation, but it can have a wider connotation too. So what he's saying is that people are being ruled by their desire for personal pleasure, to, for their own desires to be fulfilled, no matter what those desires may be. That's what people are uh, being motivated by. And so the pleasures in these churches are directed toward power and control and position. The reason I say that is because he's telling us that there are battles going on there are divisions in the church, people are fighting for power, and so on. And, uh, and so the war that's ra- raging in the church is the result of, he tells us here, a war which is what r- waged within the members, that's the hearts, of people belonging to it. So there's a war going on in the hearts of individuals between godly desires and self-centered desires and When that happens with a lot of people, it all spills out and it creates mayhem in the church. And James tells us that they're caught up in a web of three things he mentions, jealousy, murder, and envy. Well, those are are serious things. But you know, that web has existed ever since Cain murdered Abel because back at the beginning of the Bible, 
God invited two brothers, Cain and Abel, to a sacrifice. That means a worship service. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God and Cain's wasn't. And Cain was jealous of that. And as a result, he murdered his brother right there in church. The murder occurred in the middle of a worship service. Now, uh, James isn't talking about literal murder. Uh, any more than he's talking about literal battles in which people are kind of fighting each other. Although I do remember a congregation where there was such a serious division within the choir that two of the men decked each other in the church foyer at the end of the service. (laughs) That was one of the most extreme things. Thank God it wasn't my church. Uh, But So he's not talking about literal fighting, physical fighting, but he's, he's, or literal murder, but he's, he's using these words for shock value, right? It's shock value. The, the churches he was addressing probably, probably didn't even think they had a problem. And he's saying, you have a problem. My suspicion is that James has tried to deal with these issues on a kind of a more pastoral level and got absolutely nowhere. Nobody's listening. And now he's resorting to shock value. He's saying, you know, when you act like this with your power struggles and battles for control and everybody's pursuing what they, what they personally want, which is, which is feeding their own ego or feeding their flesh or whatever. When that happens, it's almost like you are fighting each other physically. It's almost like you are murdering each other. And uh, how many know that you can murder someone with your tongue? See, In the previous chapter, James has just told them the tongue is a lethal weapon set on fire by hell. You can cause devastation to a person's life through the use of your tongue. It's not unknown for people to be driven into mental illness illness or sometimes suicide because of verbal attacks that have been made on them. Murder is going on. And this is disgusting to God. So... What's the root of all this? Verses 2 and 3 say, it's things we want but can't get. Well, it's not surprising that's the root of the problem because that's how the original fall took place. Uh, Adam and Eve had been given everything they needed. They lived in paradise. But the serpent came in and he managed to focus their attention on that one thing that they didn't have. They couldn't get it. The things they want to have but can't get, that's always where the trouble starts. And that was their downfall, and it's our downfall. What happens is we harm other people in the process of trying to fulfill our own desires, of trying to get what we want, we trample over other people. And so James says God refuses to give us what we ask because we're asking for the wrong things. And The things we do have, he says, we're squandering. You know, let me give you a word of advice. When your life life is full of wanting the wrong things, you will wind up wasting the things that you do have. The desire to fulfill your own needs at the expense of other people will end in your bankruptcy, your physical bankruptcy, your financial bankruptcy, your emotional bankruptcy, and your spiritual bankruptcy. The solution is, is Jesus Christ to follow him 
to put his priorities first, to be a giver, not a taker, and then you'll find that the provision blessing of God from God himself and from everybody around you begins to flow into your life. Well, now, I preached according to the timer here, which Ron has very kindly put on for me. I preached for half of my message or my allotted time, and I haven't even got to the point of adultery. So I better get to it. But we have to work through the text. So James is, I think you'll agree with me by now, in the first three verses, he's rolled a few big guns out. And uh, uh, you can just imagine people who are reading this letter, they're already out the door and going to the seeker-sensitive church down the street where the preacher tells them that it doesn't matter what you do, God loves you and he's committed to your happiness above everything else and everything's just a big happy clappy mishmash. But, you know, hopefully that's not the values of vital point, is it? So we're not here to tell you what a bunch of bums you are. We'll let James do that <laughs> instead of us. No, that's, that's not what we're here to, but, to do. But we are here to say, you know what? If you want to live that way, you won't do yourself any good. If you really want to find true happiness and peace, then there's a way to wisdom. And James is telling us how to get, get to it. Okay, verse 4, he takes dead aim. He says, you adulterous people, you adulterers. I've got to make an emphasis on this because it, it actually brings, uh, uh, brings me to the point that I was supposed to preach on. So I'm just emphasizing I'm actually preaching on what I was asked to preach on. Even though I'm grumbling about it. Okay. So, as if it wasn't enough to call them murderers, he now calls them adulterers as well. Well, it's shock value. That's what it is. He's, he's throwing things at them, not to, uh, you know, slander them, but to say, come on, guys. Come on, men. Come on, women. That This isn't good enough. And what you're doing and how you're behaving is disgraceful. It's disgusting to God, and it's shooting yourself in the foot. Let's get our act together here. If God has to say something to you, or he has to do something in your life that gives you a shock, please listen. Please listen. God may have tried many other ways of getting through your thick head, and you haven't listened, and so now he has to do something that really gets your attention. I only say that because he's done it with me. But the interesting thing here in verse 4 is how he defines adultery. It isn't quite like Proverbs. Proverbs is just, Proverbs chapter 7 has that focus of literal adultery. But James broadens it out and says adultery is friendship with the world. In other words, to flirt with the world is like marital unfaithfulness. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised at what James is saying here, because if you go back to the Old Testament, God's people are often presented as a bride. And idolatry is presented as adultery. So God frequently accuses Israel of adultery, of being a pure bride whom he married, and that bride then becomes unfaithful by 
worshiping or looking to something other than God. And you can read the prophets, Isaiah, for instance, or Ezekiel, or Hosea in particular. They have some, they have some almost X-rated passages. That might be a motivation to read your Bible. No. Uh, but they have some, let's call it, pretty vivid passages along these lines. Israel is described frequently as nothing more or less than a prostitute. So, but he's talking in spiritual terms. You prostituted yourself by worshiping other gods or by worshiping money frequently is the case in the Old Testament and losing track of God. So what then is idolatry? Well, idolatry is the worship of anything other than the true God. Idolatry is placing such value on something that it becomes our highest pursuit. How many know you don't have to have an idol in your living room to be committing idolatry? Or the idol could be the television. Who knows? Idolatry it can, can refer to uh, idolatry can refer to wealth, it can refer to the pursuit of position in life, of power, it can even refer to spending our time consumed with entertainment or sports or something. But the things that are not bad in themselves, because none of those things are bad in themselves, even money is not bad in itself, it's what you do with it. Anything that takes the place of God is wrong. That's idolatry. And here, James says, it's like adultery. It's like flirting with the world. The world is the world system that's an enmity with God. And if you read through the book of James, you'll see that the pursuit of money and position was a big, big problem in the churches that he was writing to. Rich people were honored and paid attention to. Poor people were despised. The wealthy people were spending all their time running after money. But at the same time, they were cheating their own employees. Um, So, uh, given the pursuit of position and money and power amongst the Christians to whom James is writing, it isn't surprising that they fall prey to another form of idolatry, which is elevating themselves by running other people down. Because we're told that the church was full of divisions, churches were full of divisions and gossip and slander. Now, the book of Revelation, which I never preach without at least giving one reference to, uses the word pornia. We can all figure out what that sort of means. It it means sexual immorality. And Revelation uses the word quite a lot, but the primary meaning is not physical, it's participation in the world system, as described in Revelation in terms of Babylon. And Babylon is a system that's full of money and the pursuit of wealth. It's also full of violence and hatred and jealousy and murder, all these things James is talking about as well, and literal immorality. In Revelation, the church is presented as a pure bride. Babylon is presented in terms that are borrowed from the Old Testament description of Jezebel. In other words, a prostitute. So there's two women. The church is a pure bride, and what's out there in the world is a prostitute. It's a terrible uh, um, malformation. It's, it's, uh, it's not what God wanted. Now, how do we participate in Babylon? Revelation tells us we participate in Babylon when we put our selfish interests ahead of others or of God. 
When we pursue what pleases ourselves, not what pleases God. When we spend our money and our time on ourselves and don't uh, allow God to dictate our priorities. When we cut corners on our financial practices, when we cheat on our taxes, when we don't show any care for other people. See, that's adultery. That's what James is saying. That's adultery. Well, my, my time is coming to a close here, and the important thing is the answer. Because, you know, it's kind of discouraging when you just get told your problem, even if the problem is correct, correctly stated, but there's always an answer. And James says, no matter how far you've fallen, verse 6, God gives more grace. Oh, thank God for his grace. We're, we, we're all fallen people. Romans says we've sinned, that's past tense, and fall short, that's present tense. We're still falling short of the grace of God. So the good news is there's forgiveness for our spiritual adultery. If you feel your life is in a mess, God has given up on you, don't believe it for a minute. If you're a doctor, sometimes you've got to give tough news to a patient. But then the doctor says this is the solution. A doctor sat with our son and daughter-in-law a couple years ago. The baby that was in the womb had a problem. And they set forth the fact that unless this problem is resolved, uh, when he gets to about a year and a half, he'll require surgery. That was tough news, very tough news for them. But there was an answer. The answer was, and, and I say this because just a week ago or so, little Henry, who was 20 months old, went through a four hours of surgery, and thank God he came through it fine. It was a tough process, but it was worth it. So the doctor comes to you and says, you've got a problem. You know, the doctor could have, could have said, well, I'm not going to tell them that because they'll feel better if they don't know. But then a couple years later, it would have caught up to them and it would have been worse than it ever was, than, than, than it would have been worse for them than if the doctor had not just been honest in the first place. So what I'm trying to say is, if God's trying to get your attention this morning, there's a simple answer. Just listen. Just listen. God sent his son to die for you. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, well, Dave, you've got me taped, you know, I've got this problem and that problem in my life, then don't give up. God's getting your attention. He doesn't want you to wreck your life. His grace is available for you today. It's always available for you today. But there's one thing. You just need to take a hold of it. Grace isn't just a theological concept. Grace is a divine energy that gives us power to change. And, and, and here's how we change. Dr. James has delivered the bad news, but he has this answer. And it's very simple. He says, submit to God. He quotes Proverbs, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So to live for God, to submit to God, we need grace. You get grace by being humble. Being humble simply is, yes, Lord, I hear what you're saying. I've got a problem. Please help me. It's as simple as that. You can't dig yourself out of the pit. That's why God throws you a lifeline. The lifeline's called grace. He gives you power to change. Submit is an interesting word in Greek. It means to place yourself under a structure or an order that God has created for your well-being. If you put a fence up 
around your yard because you live in a busy street so that your kids can't run out onto the road. You're encouraging them to submit to a structure that you've created for their protection. God puts all sorts of fences up for our welfare. To submit means to choose to come under his order instead of trying to create your own. To do that, you need grace. To say no to all those things you've been chasing after and the wrong behaviors and all the rest of it. But if you say yes to God and submit, the grace will come. And submission, and this is the last thing I want to say as I come to verses 7 and 8. Submission plays out in two directions. Number one, resist the devil. You resist the devil by submitting to God. I hope you believe in the devil uh, because he's real. But to resist him, you don't have to huff and puff and yell at him and do all sorts of incantations. You just submit the devil. You resist the devil by submitting to God. Now, leave the devil out of the picture. If you submit to God, Satan will flee. We give Satan too much credit sometimes. Satan cannot withstand the power of people who are submitted to God. A submitted people have the power of the kingdom of God behind them. A submitted church cannot be stopped. Number one, resist the devil. Number two, draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? Well, James says it involves cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts, even mourning and weeping over how you've gone away from God. But the promise is real. If you submit to God and draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Resist the devil, draw near to God. The devil will try to do anything to keep you from drawing near to God. Drawing near to God, part of that is just praying. You don't have to spend hours in prayer. Spend five minutes a day in prayer. Draw near to God. Find out how God draws near to you. Well, that all sounds like repentance. I think we need a revival of repentance in the church. Repentance is just simply this. It means turn. It's like you're walking in this direction away from God. Repentance is just turn. It's just turn around and start walking toward God instead of walking away from him. It's a process. Don't judge yourself on how far you've got along the path. Judge yourself on whether you're walking away from God or toward God. If, you've made that, if you haven't made that turn this morning, if you haven't ever given your life to Jesus, now's the time. Why would you walk away from God and everything that's good? Just turn. That's it. Just turn around and say, God, I want to walk toward you instead of away from you. Well, I've got 15 seconds left. We spend so much time looking to the world for what folks the world will never give you. If you're a a Christian in doing that, James is saying you're committing adultery. That's not a good place to be. God has so much more to offer you, so much more than you could ever get through your own efforts and the things that you want. Don't sell your soul for a satisfaction you'll never find in anything other than God. Jesus has something far better for you today. Now, Father, I pray that you'd seal these words in our heart and that they would result in the power of grace coming into our lives to give us change in the right direction so that we turn and walk toward you and not away from you. Lord, thank you for the patience of people who sat here and been called adulterers when they're probably, most of them, 
Maybe all of them are not. But Lord, even if we're not, it's a warning and an encouragement at the same time that we all need to hear. So thank you for your grace, Lord, that we live in today, every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. I'm going to ask you to stand. I've been praying through the course of our gathering this morning and been just seeking God on what he would have me say in the close of our service today. And um, the, the imagery of drifting keeps coming to my mind. And, you know, it's interesting in our journey of faith, if, if you're a follower of Jesus or, or maybe you're exploring a relationship with Jesus, it's, it's interesting because when we drift, we don't usually drift towards the things that we want. We drift away. And I understand the tension of this conversation. I understand the complexity of it. I recognize that oftentimes we paint a picture of a walk with Jesus as this straight line. And, you know, like it's like we walk one foot in front of the other. And, but we recognize as a church that it's a, a bit of meandering. It's a bit of wandering. It's zigzagging. It's learning what does it mean to prioritize Jesus. And that sometimes in our drifting, what happens is, is we put the things of our life ahead of him. We put the, the concerns, the, the pursuits, the, the dreams all in front of that. And then next thing you know, we're prioritizing those things and putting our weight in those things or trusting those things more than we trust God. And and um, I've spent a fair amount of time this summer, and I've intentionally not been preaching um, the vast majority. I am preaching next weekend, but um, because I have felt that the last few years of my faith journey as the pastor of this church and in my own walk with Jesus is that um, I had... I started gazing at things of this world. Like I, I allowed myself to prioritize other things that shouldn't have that place in my life. And not, trust me, it's not like big sins or anything. It was just pursuing these other things. And so I've spent a fair amount of time this summer, both Desiree and I have, of prioritizing Jesus. We've been pursuing him together. And um, there's this phrase I, um, that we came across. It's called benevolent detachment. And it's a pretty complex two words together, but simply it means this, Jesus, I give you everything and everyone. It's the willingness to just give over everything and everyone to him. I found myself even at night um, waking up with some pressure of church life and leadership and And I found myself repeating this over and over and over again. And what I discovered is that even in the middle of the night when I'm awakened by some pressure or some anxiety or some worry, I just keep repeating this phrase, Jesus, I give you everything and everyone. Everything and everyone. The people that I love and the people I have a tough time loving. The people that are in favor of the things that I do as a pastor and those who are not in favor of the things that I do as a pastor. 
Jesus, I give you everything and everyone. So maybe that's for us today the takeaway. As we consider this topic, as we consider this conversation that David had with us, maybe right now today in the midst of this service, the Spirit of God has been revealing something to you that you have put your trust in that's not Jesus. Or maybe even you're here and you've not trusted Jesus before. Maybe you're here and someone's invited you to church and, and you've, they've said, you've got to come to this church. There's something happening here. It's really popular because it's in Poplar Hill. And it's, it's like, you've got to come. That came to me this morning. We were driving here. I had to drop it in. Um, I've never used that before. I'm, I, don't you use it again? Okay. Um, <laughs> But I, I, just, I, I, I just think it's important for us to step back and go, which direction am I going? Am I walking this way away from God or am I turning towards him? And I'm convinced that more and more people, David and I were talking about this when we recorded the talk on Thursday, that we're seeing a renewal of people's faith and an excitement of people's faith again. As we've come out of this past couple of years, it's been wonderful to see excitement and energy and enthusiasm. And um, evidence of that this morning in this place is a standing room only, which is really exciting. Don't worry, we're going back to two services in September 11th, so we'll have more room. This week coming up as a church, we've got Forest Cliff Camp all week. They're going to be here on the property. We've got 80 kids signed up for camp this week, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, I got a text message, it stopped raining, so the outdoor cafe at the back of the buildings open this morning, stick around, have a coffee, meet some new people. September 4th, we've got our picnic in the park after the service, so we're going to do our service in here, then we're going to go across the way to the, to the park, and uh, some, we've got some food trucks showing up, so invite your friends. Don't, don't even worry about inviting them to church, just invite them to the park afterwards, because we won't have room for them on the 4th, but we will on the 11th. Um, and uh, you're doing a great job, Mike. Um, <laughs> oh, I love my job. Anyway, um, the prayer room. Here's the deal. Some of you have had a nudge today. Some of you have had this little thing inside of you. You're not even sure what it is. Maybe it's your heart's racing a little bit more, or, or there's been a nudge of an area of your life. We have a prayer room downstairs uh, that's available to you. If you walk, as you're walking out, you see the fireplace, just go to the right. And uh, Kathy's in there today, our host. She's going to be there in the prayer room to pray with you. Or you can just sit by yourself and just pray and uh, spend some time there. And, um, yeah, let's, let's close our time in prayer. And uh, let's give the week to God. God, we are so grateful for this morning and have a real sense that in just the 60-some minutes, you have been working and moving. And, and uh, God, I pray today for all of us that no matter where we find ourselves in our journey of faith, that we will understand your love and your grace that you have extended to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We just thank you and love you for the extent of that love and that grace. And even though it's a complex journey, we understand that you desire us to prioritize him above all else. And so, Father, forgive us at times when we do that. 
At times we must confess that we do get our eyes off of Jesus and we get our eyes on the things of this world. And even though James does the wake-up call, you adulterers, we, we recognize that your grace is extended even in the midst of that. Father, I pray for those at home as well watching. God, we are grateful that uh, we have the technology to do this. And so, Father, I pray for those people at home right now that as they watch and experience this, that they too would know your grace. So, Father, as we leave this place today, we recognize that the service has come to an end, but we know that you've not stopped speaking to us. And so I pray over all of us today as we leave, we'll have a sense of your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you next week.